podcast right now. (laughs) Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stripped by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kimchi on stage. You can probably catch me in, um, actually this week, (laughs) this week uh, at Shaker Show Lounge in Surrey in Canada, where I am based out of, which is a fun little club. If you haven't been there already, feel free to come by, say hi, chat with me about the show, or buy dads for me, or me. I'll accept all three. It's it's great. Um, I just want to welcome everyone back for season five. This is a season five opener. I gave you all a couple extra episodes with season four. I just, I guess I miscalculated. I was like, oh yeah, we're done. I'm like, oh, there's extra episodes, but it's okay. Um, I'm really excited to be fresh and back recording after a month and a half-ish off from podcasting. So my apologies if I'm a little bit rusty, if I'm stumbling over my words. Um, I haven't done this in a while, so uh, but I am really excited to kind of get this back on track. Um, as you know, or maybe you haven't, maybe you're brand new here, this is a show about sex work. It's all about de- um, destigmatizing sex work mainly. And I bring on different guests every single week, people that are in the industry, performers, uh, the talent. We also have people that are in the back end of things. We have allies, nonprofit organizations that help support sex sex, sex workers. Wow, I'm already screwing up. Um, <laughs> onto the show to give a really transparent approach to sex work and the work that it is that we do. A uh, nice insight on the adult industry from all different facets um, to help humanize sex workers because I think that's really important to do. So that's just a little about the show. Um, I just want to do some quick shout outs before we kind of get into the swing of things. So a big shout out to Skyhawk After Dark is an adult industry podcast network that I am a part of. There are also many other shows that are on there, not just podcasts, but also vidcasts and other really great um, media pieces and companies that are on there. So be sure to kind of give them a peep, especially if you're looking for other content to listen to and resources. It's a great one. So that and also shout out to my lovely subscribers on Patreon. Just going to give a few shout outs to those who are on the top tier of Patreon. And that is to Arup Sarkar. We have Jay Sensor and we've got Snoo Snoo and we have Justin Erickson. Thank you so much for always contributing. Um, just being really transparent about where this money is going. Um, this money is going towards my website. Um, that is I'm hoping we'll be launching by the time this season comes out. Finally, it's been a long time coming. So that's exactly where your dollars are going. Um, And you can subscribe and support the show for as little as $4 a month. Um, I really greatly appreciate your support, all the reviews, all all the likes and stuff, you sharing the show. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. And gosh, I feel like the spiel gets longer and longer every time I do episodes. But um, if you want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash stripped by Sia. So getting back to today's guest and also I'm just really excited to kind of start off this season um, just because I really want us to start on with a bang. And I've been wanting to get this guest on for a little bit, who is a good friend of uh, Jay Copeda. If you've listened to last season, my interview with him, he is president of Why Not? And he's just had so many great things, just constantly gushing about this week's guest. And yes, so I have been trying to get her on the show for a while. Um, And today is day. 
Today is the day, my friends. I am so excited, and I probably should have asked her how to pronounce her last name, but I'm going to try and hopefully get it right the first time. Uh, welcome to the show, Kathy Reisenwitz. Did I get that right? Absolutely perfect. Absolutely <laughs> flawless. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so nice to finally meet you and be on the show. Likewise. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally get you on, and like you, you've done so much for the community. Um, if for those who don't know, Kathy is a writer. Um, she's a writer. You might have read her work um, in TechCrunch, Daily Beast, uh, Forbes, Vice, a lot of stuff. She has a fantastic newsletter called Sex in the State. Go subscribe. Um, lots of great stuff about uh, decrim, about sex work, about censorship, about a lot of things that we as sex workers go through. Why? because she's also a sex worker as well, which is such an important piece. And I am really excited to pick her brain today about writing, about media, about politics uh, that come around sex work and how it's all intertwined. So yeah, that is Ms. Kathy Rosenwitz. Welcome to the show. Cannot wait to get into all of this. (laughs) I'd love to throw it back to you too. Like um, I always – try to give my guests the opportunity to define themselves however they want to define themselves, um, and especially if I've missed anything as well. So feel free to um, give your own introduction as well to the to the audience. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, I consider myself a writer, activist, commentator on a variety of topics, but within the past few years with a special focus on sex uh, work, Um, but I've come from a sex positive feminist perspective for a long time now. Um, I actually started writing about sex work before I ever did any sex work. Um, Oh! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've been a sex positive feminist for a long time, and um, I also semi-identify as a libertarian, and so within a libertarian framework, um, I was curious about especially, and really the, the origin of the blog Sex in the State uh, came from what is the intersection between sex positive feminism and libertarianism. And so looking at the ways that the state um, kind of codifies and enforces through violence, uh, a sex negative uh, framework. And so the criminalization and stigmatization of sex work is a perfect example. So I wrote in like 2013, an article for the Daily Beast uh, about why prostitution should be legalized. And this was based on like a trip to Germany and reading about how much more pleasant and safe it is to work in a legal environment versus a criminalized environment. And then the online sex workers descended and said, we don't want legalization. We want decriminalization and explain to me why. And I was like, well, that makes perfect sense. And so really since then, I've been advocating for uh, decriminalization of sex work from a both like moral, theoretical, and just practical perspective, we know decriminalization is associated with lower rates of violence, lower rates of STIs, lower rates of uh, predation, um, and even lower rates of trafficking. So um, coming at it from that perspective, just looking at like the ways that stigmatization also harms sex workers. Um, and then I guess, oh God, when was it? Maybe around then, I started sugar babying in D.C. where I was living. And so that was my first foray into sex work. And oh. um, and it definitely uh, 
was an interesting experience. Um, I did it for a few years, uh, like hardcore for probably two years, and then um, on and off for a few more years, and then decided it, it really wasn't for me. And it was never my full-time job. My full-time job has always been writing. Um, but it was it was a nice uh, thing to do on the side. And um, then in pandemic, I uh, got into OnlyFans. And so I started creating content that way. And I started focusing more on the porn side of the equation than the in-person sex work side of the equation, looking at how uh, censorship of pornography um, plays into the broader situation with regards to civil liberties and um, the ways in which, you know, sex workers, especially online, are canaries in the coal mine um, for other civil liberty erosions. And I've since then uh, taken a break from OnlyFans, but, you know, I'm still writing about sex. I'm still writing about relationships. And so I'm, I think, uh, you know, the best definition of sex worker is anyone who participates in erotic labor. And so, you know, by that definition and certainly in solidarity, like I'll always consider myself a sex worker. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my story. Wow. That's really interesting. Like, I mean, especially because like you were writing about it before and also because, I mean, after your trip to Germany, you you had this kind of a lens before going into it and then your opinion changing because of the response from sex workers like, hey, 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 this is actually not what we want. <laughs> we want decrim. We don't want legalization. And like a lot of us are really much in solidarity with that. So that's really cool that you're able to to shift that thinking and really um, take that critique and feedback and really do more research on that. And now we're a complete advocate for that. So really cool. Um, uh, questions for you <laughs> in terms of like, how did you, like you said, your first entry into sex work was with sugar babying. How did you get into that? Like, how did you hear about it? Was it just like through a friend or like, you know, popularized through like seeking arrangement and whatnot? Or like, how did you fall into that? Well, where do we begin? So I actually grew up evangelical Christian. So oh my gosh. changing my mind is like my hobby. Um, <laughs> uh, I've, I've changed my mind very radically on several topics. And honestly, I think that that's a lot of why I've always been kind of obsessed with sex and gender mm. um, is that it was so focused on in the way I grew up. And um, I just came to believe that the things that I was told about sex and gender were not only wrong, but like really pernicious. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a lot of my work has honestly been about how do I save other people some time? Because it took me years to get out of this way of thinking and just to be exposed to the idea that maybe sex between consenting adults is morally neutral. Um, and so I think, you know, I grew up being told that sex, any sex outside of a, a monogamous heterosexual marriage was sinful. Mm -hmm. And once I started to let go of that idea, um, you know, I remember my mom one time jokingly saying like, well, if you're going to have sex with all these guys, you might as well get paid for it. Ah. And it's almost like I took that seriously. <laughs> um, it, it was getting to the point where I was like, you know, I'm, I'm whoring around, so to speak, because I got married at 22, lost my virginity on my wedding night. And then at 26, when I was getting divorced, I was just like, I need to have more experiences than, you know, one or two yeah. people. And so I just started dating a lot. And, um, you know, I guess it was like, 
I don't have any political problem with sex work. I don't have any moral problem with sex work. I need money. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems worth giving a try. And so I thought, you know, I'd heard about seeking arrangement. Yeah. Um, and I thought, what really is the difference between a guy taking me out and paying for dinner and a guy taking me out and paying for dinner and giving me some cash? Yeah. And it, even ideologically, like that all flowed, like that all made sense. And yet it was still such a interesting experience. The first time I was actually given cash, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I'm a whore now, you know, like, <laughs> what does this mean? Yeah. Um, but I got over it pretty quickly and, <laughs> uh, and got, got paid a lot more times. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of, kind of my experience where it didn't bother me from like a moral perspective. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just kind of a situation where the blurred lines between like dating for a relationship and dating for, you know, other purposes mm-hmm. um, was just a little confusing to me. So I didn't, I didn't necessarily like that. I also felt like it was just way too much time for the money often. Um, Oh my um, gosh. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like the uncomfortability, like where, where did that stem from? Because you said you didn't like that and you were confused by it. Like where, what were you battling if you can recall during that time? I mean, I was battling extremely explicit messaging that I'd grown up with my whole life, that to have sex for money was bad and gross and immoral and wrong, and that it made me a, you know, a bad person. And, um, uh, you know, it's the same with like, when I started doing OnlyFans, and I was like, thinking about putting my naked body on the internet for strangers to masturbate to like it was um you know I had a, a particular hang-up about like showing my butthole you know <laughs> um like people are gonna judge me or this is gross or this is bad and it's like you can have all of the reasons and logic and conviction in the world that what you're doing is morally neutral but the programming that you that's been installed, in you from a young age, like it doesn't just disappear when you decide that's not how you believe things anymore, that um, these messages and these narratives and these beliefs don't just vanish into the ether. They have to be actively confronted and dismantled for the rest of your life, unfortunately. Um, And so I just wanted to, I want to be honest about that and say that like, if you still struggle with shame around sex, like that's because you were told to very, you know, to, to different levels of explicitness. I was on the far end of the explicitness of of that message, but everyone, I think who grows up in America or Canada or or any place um, uh, with kind of a fundamentally sex negative attitudes are, you know, is going to have to uh, actively confront that programming as we go about our lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, if you want to share quickly too, like, how were you able to dismantle that? And like, what was your process in that? Because I also went through something like similar to that too. In fact, like, like going through my entire sugar baby career, and that was like three, three years, maybe or two years, two, two years, actually. Yeah. 
Um, I was in complete denial that that was even sex work. And I didn't even really realize that till later on when I started going into stripping and I had like two years of stripping and like like not wanting to adopt that title of stripper because of the stigma that comes in. So that's like four years like later of me like, okay, I'm going to be okay with this. Like I'm curious to see how you were able to process that. You know, I think that it really started with my divorce. So um, when I married, I was still an evangelical Christian. I got married at 22, like I said. Um, but really, honestly, like when I started college, I kind of started to move away from evangelical Christianity and started to question the church's uh, teachings on sex. Um, one thing that happened was my little sister came out of the closet as a lesbian. And I started to dig into, I think it's really easy when your beliefs don't contradict with your, don't, don't contradict the way you would otherwise want to live or, or other things that are important to you. It's easy to say like, well, I believe this, you know, whether or not it makes sense. And to be fair, the evangelical churches that I grew up in very much stressed unquestioning belief and very much uh, discouraged uh, questioning and uh, looking to evidence and, and, and critical thinking, honestly. Um, but with my sister coming out, it kind of forced me to confront kind of how, what I believed about that because I've been taught it was a sin for her to have gay sex. And so she would never be allowed under our belief system to get married or um, have a girlfriend that she had sex with. And I thought, like, why is it okay in God's mind for me to marry a man and have sex with him, but not for my sister to marry a woman and have sex with her? Like, what is the purpose? Like, what is the reasoning for this? Mm -hmm. And so I started to, you know, Google, like, biblical prohibitions on homosexuality and came to the opinion that the, first of all, the Bible really doesn't have a lot to say about homosexuality. And anything it does have to say is like very dependent on context. And so in the context in which the Old and New Testaments were written, um, it was not socially acceptable to like, they, they really didn't even have a concept of like being gay. Um, and a, a lot of the teachings, especially the New Testament, were aimed at, let's not get very far afield of the popular culture because it's going to bring unnecessary attention to the church. And so things like women should keep their heads covered in church, right? Paul writes that in the New Testament. Well, that's not because that's a fundamental, universal, for all time declaration about what is moral. It's more a practical thing of like, this is the way things are done now. Just keep doing them that way. And I, I came to the same conclusion about homosexuality, um, that it wasn't a universal moral declaration, that it was just, you know, uh, more of a, this is the way things are done, don't get too far afield of it. And so then when I was considering getting divorced, um, my I wanted to go to couples therapy because my husband and I had had the same problem the whole four years we'd been married. And I was like, you know, maybe we need a mediator. The only... So as I got kind of less evangelical, he was getting like kind of more evangelical. Oh. And so we were, we were attending a church and he said, I will only see the pastor and his wife for, for, for marriage counseling. So I sat down with them and the only thing they wanted to talk about was not the issues I was having in my marriage. It was my relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and how essentially because I was even considering divorce, that's indicative of my broken relationship with Jesus and how that needs to be fixed. And and then we can talk about the marriage. And I thought, well, things are never going to get fixed in this uh, schema. And do I believe this enough to stay in a marriage that I don't think is going to be good for either of us? You know, we don't have any kids. We didn't have much like property, you know, it, it just, I was 26. I had a lot of life ahead of me. I was just like, I, I just don't think this makes sense. Like, I don't believe it enough to sacrifice, you know, the, the things about this that are going to make me unhappy uh, to, to continue on this. And so that was a period of, you know, what a lot of people call deconstruction right. of trying to figure out what I believed of what I'd been taught. Mm-hmm. And, you know, reading Sex Positive Feminists and uh, ultimately coming to the conclusion that if God has an opinion about sex, we're, we don't know what it is. Like, it's impossible for us to say definitively what God thinks about sex. But what we can say from science and research and anecdotal experience is that um, whatever the costs of, you know, premarital sex or gay sex or whatever sex the church has decided is immoral are vastly outweighed by the costs of stigmatizing that kind of sex. That the, the costs of stigma are extremely high and the cost of the sex itself uh, is pr- pretty low, pretty negligible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it really just doesn't make sense from any kind of empirical standpoint to hold that any kind of adult consensual sex is necessarily immoral. And so the way to come about looking at sex is to say, as far as we know, sex between consenting adults is is morally neutral. That if people want to put a, a moral uh, judgment on sex for themselves, that's fine. You know, if you want to say premarital sex isn't right for me, great. Mm-hmm. Kinky sex isn't right for me, great. But when you start making universal declarations about the morality of other people's consensual adult sex, the costs vastly outweigh the benefits, right. and the evidence isn't there. So I don't support it. Yeah, no, I agree. And so once you sorry, just to finish, just like once you kind of come to that conclusion that, you know, sex before marriage is morally neutral, um, making money is morally neutral, sex for money is morally neutral. Yeah. That's a really great way to kind of, I guess, deduce it because it makes sense. It makes logical sense. So you came to that realization during your divorce and then you're like, okay, this is kind of like, this is what I'm understanding. You've educated yourself on it. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to get into sex work. I'm going to start writing about it. Um, I'd love to hear more about how your writing because you've done a lot of coverage. You've written for a lot of different publications and media outlets and whatnot too. Like, how how did you get started with all this side of writing about Yeah, it's work? funny. I mean – I've always written, like, even as a small child, like, I have diaries um, where I would write. As soon as I got online, I, I went to Diary Land and the Lab Journal. Um, I've just always written. I've always loved to write. I studied journalism in college. Um, and I've always also been, like, super interested in politics. So I remember, you know, I thought it was normal to talk about religion and politics at the dinner table. Like, we would always, like, vociferously debate uh, various issues in my family. My um you know, my parents are both interested in politics. My, my sister is interested in politics. And so um, I got my first job in 2008 um, doing like 
basically like content marketing. Um, and you know, after my first year, it was a big company. And so I was doing the same job I was doing the year before, uh, essentially. I mean, I had more responsibilities, but I also had it down pretty well. And so I had a decent amount of free time and I had friends who knew how to set up WordPress blogs. And so (laughs) I asked my friend, shout out Matt Herndon, um, (laughs) will you set me up a WordPress? And um, it was called the Anarcho-Capitalism blog because I was interested in anarcho-capitalism in 2009. Okay. And so I just started blogging about politics, you know, just kind of hot takes um, from my perspective. And then um, four years later, as I was getting divorced, I I applied for a job at Reason Magazine. I'd been like thoroughly, uh, you know, red-pilled, I guess, into libertarianism at that time, by that time. And... Um, I started thinking about, okay, I've been using my writing skills to sell deer urine and, uh, you know, photocopiers for this corporation for four years. Mm -hmm. Can I use these marketing skills and these writing skills to sell libertarianism um, to a wider audience? Like how much more fun and meaningful and interesting would that be? So I moved to DC and worked for reason with basically the intent of becoming the libertarian and quilter. (laughs) Um, and, uh, kind of did it, you know, I, I was, I was definitely, you know, getting published and really what I decided to focus on was why is libertarianism not getting more attention from, um, people who aren't like wealthy white cis men Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've, I, I've definitely made anti-racism a part of my advocacy, but I also felt like between being a white woman and being already obsessed with sex and gender from the way I grew up, and also just being like hella horny, let's be real, <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought, you know, how do I sell libertarianism to women and how do I marry the best parts of feminism with the best parts of libertarianism. And that was kind of my goal is to get women on board by showing them how libertarianism can be uh, not just compatible with, but like really strengthening to feminism and vice versa. I mean, a lot of my work was honestly trying to sell feminism to libertarians, um, which I was extremely not successful at, (laughs) Um, but I tried. And so that's kind of how I started writing about sex and gender. And that's why I changed my blog name from anarcho-capitalism blog to sex in the state Mm -hmm. was, and, and also just like frustration with the way feminism was being covered within libertarianism and the way that libertarianism was being covered in feminism, where there was just this like extreme antagonism that just felt like totally unhelpful to me um, Mm -hmm. on both sides. And so that's kind of where that started. And then, you know, when you look at the overlap between feminism and libertarianism, like the decriminalization of sex work is, is definitely like, you know, right there in the bullseye. Um, but then also writing about things like how, you know, maybe equal pay mandates aren't the best way to um, try to equalize uh, wages between men and women, like maybe looking at like how gendered expectations play into which majors women choose. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how all that started. Yeah. I mean, like, and how was the response to when you started writing, um, back then versus like maybe 
you're writing now because this is like when did you start this I think you said like 2009 is when you started your blog and then when did that when did that change over to sex in the states or when did you rebrand that I want to say 2012 oh wow okay so still pretty early on that was like a decade ago so how was the response back then versus the response now if you can recall yeah well so I did get to write for kind of a general audience a little bit, um, especially when I joined Young Voices, which was an organization whose whole purpose was to get uh, young libertarians published in mainstream media. So I um, wrote and edited for others the op-eds that we would pitch to major, you know, know, mainstream publications. Mm -hmm. So that was helpful. But the majority of my writing was read by libertarians. um, And... What I found out was two things. First, uh, there is way less money in preaching to the choir as a libertarian than as a conservative or progressive because it's a much smaller audience. Yeah. Um, so being a libertarian and culture was, was not a very profitable endeavor for sure. Mm. Um, and then the second more important thing was that, uh, you know, as I tried my goal was kind of before we can ask women to become libertarians, we need to make libertarianism less hostile to women, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of libertarians were really not enthused about that idea. Um, What I found was the situation with regard to misogyny and libertarianism was way worse than I could have ever imagined. And it wasn't until I started trying to, talk about feminism to libertarians that I was informed very uh, aggressively that um, they were uh, uh, strongly anti-feminist. A lot of libertarians were strongly anti-feminist. And honestly, like what I was seeing was what we was the beginnings of, I was early to the recognition that their was within libertarianism a very strong um, fascist reactionary component. And what we've seen since 2013, 2015, is kind of a cleaving of a lot of people from libertarianism to Trumpism, Mm. to the uh, alt-right, and to explicitly reactionary politics. And so I was kind of a canary in the coal mine for that shift and that kind of unmasking of of a lot of of a lot of libertarianism um unfortunately yeah gosh and i mean like i mean with trumpism and a lot of the other things that you mentioned there too those are generally enemies of sex workers uh or at least they have a lot of um concepts that sex workers don't agree with or concepts um that they try to instill upon sex workers because we are such a marginalized group and a lot of silencing and I know you've written a lot on that too I think I've kind of seen a few of your past articles from back in the day and also recently about like the on like censorship um and the silencing of sex worker voices do you want to speak about um kind of the politics and sex work and like how that might go hand in hand um, and how that's also dangerous <laughs> or can be dangerous for sex workers? 
Yeah. I mean, um, like a great example would be SESTA-FOSTA of uh, attempts to control sex workers being extremely dangerous and even deadly for sex workers. Um, and then also harmful to um, everyone. So 2018 SESTA-FOSTA um, was ostensibly aimed at uh, reducing sex trafficking. Um, and what it did was it claimed that there was lots and lots of sex trafficking being facilitated by websites like Craigslist, Backstage, that, Facebook. Yeah. And that if we can force platforms to, um, you know, shut down any uh, suspected sex trafficking that's happening on those platforms, then we could reduce the total instances of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. This got a lot of things wrong. Um, the first thing it got wrong is the idea that there's a lot of sex trafficking that's happening online. That's not accurate by no. any stretch of the imagination. Um, the vast majority of sex trafficking is done in person. Um, and then the second thing it got wrong was that shutting down uh, websites that sex traffickers were using um, would make it the total instances of sex trafficking decrease. Law enforcement before SESTA-FOSTA passed said, this is going to make our lives harder, that we are using these platforms to find instances of sex trafficking, and that in the, in, in the case of Backpage, for example, which was mostly used for consenting adults to um, advertise uh, sex work and mm -hmm. for buyers to find sex workers. Yeah. Occasionally, there would be instances where um, people were being advertised who weren't fully consenting. That, that did happen. Mm -hmm. And in every case, as far as I'm aware, um, that Backpage knew about this or suspected it, they would alert law enforcement and say, hey, we think this is sex trafficking. And, and we know like from the government's own data that there were many instances of Backpage not just complying with law enforcement, but like proactively uh, contacting law enforcement and saying like, we think this might be happening. So so it, it's, it's increased since it's passed, it's increased the incidences of sex trafficking. It's made it more difficult for law enforcement to find sex traffickers. And uh, it's made it more difficult for sex workers to advertise online. Um, mm -hmm. So Backpage has been shut down. Craigslist has removed um, its uh, advertisements for yeah. adult services, which has meant um, sex workers have lost income. Um, they have in certain instances committed suicide. They have in certain instances been murdered because instead of going to the internet to be able to find and vet um, and do background checks on and negotiate with clients. They've been forced to work outdoors um, and do all that in person, which is more dangerous. Yes. Um, so, and then the thing that's impacted everyone is that platforms in their desire to not be held criminally liable, if anyone is shown to be doing any kind of sex trafficking um, on their websites, have just purged vast amounts of anything related to sex. Yes, And so this has meant people have lost their uh, files on Google Drive, um, that sex educators um, have, have had their, um, you know, information censored, mm -hmm. um, that just lots of totally innocuous and helpful discussions of sex and gender have been taken offline, that, you know, trans 
people looking for medical advice and uh, counseling have been unable to access that. Um, so all those have been uh, negative impacts of this desire to, uh, you know, supposedly control sex trafficking, but actually to make life more difficult for sex workers. And that's what's behind a lot of this, you know, supposedly well-meaning legislation is that there are groups in the United States who are actively opposed to sex work. And so um, they certainly don't mind enacting legislation that makes uh, that endangers the lives and livelihoods of sex workers um, because they mistakenly believe that it will lead to less sex work when we know from all available evidence that it barely touches the incidences of sex work, but it vastly increases the danger sure, yeah. um, that we're putting sex workers and buyers in. Totally. Yeah. And thank you for that in-depth approach explanation. I've, I've talked about Plasticesta many times in, in different episodes. Um, there's, there's too many to even mention here, but <laughs> it has been um, a big, big pain point in our community um, and has really had that trickle down effect ever since its enactment. Um, I would love to hear, in, in addition to this, um, also hear about like your thoughts on uh, big like financial institutions pulling out of like Pornhub, pulling out of, you know, like not, not allowing the platforms that they are affiliated with, um, not allowing any kind of adult content and that being like, t like against their terms and services and stuff. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So um, in addition to, these groups who want to end in-person sex work. There's also a concerted effort, sometimes by the same groups, to essentially, and this they'll they've admitted it. Like if you go to their websites, like this is not a conspiracy theory. Like they they say we want to remove all sexual content from the internet. Um, it's crazy. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's wild. Um, in their effort to do that, they're going after payment processors and credit card companies and pressuring them to uh, stop working with uh, adult sites. Mm -hmm. And so this comes in the form of like Nicholas Kristoff wrote uh, an article about, you know, the children of Pornhub. Well, <laughs> Kristoff, who, who's gotten a lot wrong in his career, um, very vastly misrepresents the situation with regard to Pornhub and and instances of underage content. I mean, the first thing that the whole conversation got wrong was before this article ever came out, um, Pornhub was doing, uh, you know, a, a decent amount of due diligence to ensure that everyone on the website was 18 and up. Um, and it's also important to remember that uh, you know, for a mainstream porn company or, or any kind of porn company, they are legally required to uh, ensure that all of the people in the video are 18 and up. Um, they have to keep even physical copies of paperwork proving that the people are 18 and up. Right. But, you know, 
for a while, Pornhub allowed uploads of amateur videos and, and didn't require those checks and also allowed downloads of videos, which means if somebody put something up that was illegal, um, even if Pornhub took it down, if other people had downloaded it, they could easily re-upload it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was seen as like this huge scourge. Well, the reality is Facebook hosts way, like many, many, many times more child sexual abuse material, CSAM, than Pornhub ever, ever will. Um, That if your true goal is to make sure that, uh, that no CSAM is hosted on the internet, it makes way more sense to go after Facebook than Pornhub. Wow. In addition, Pornhub um, voluntarily uh, disabled the downloading of videos. Um, I believe, uh, you need to prove that you are of age to upload videos now. Um, right. and you know, vastly, right. So voluntarily, uh, was already doing more and then did even more than Facebook ever did to ensure that this is not a problem. Um, obviously it's the internet, like stuff happens, but, um, and so, uh, even after Pornhub made these changes, uh, the evangelical groups that are pushing against, you know, any kind of sexual um, content on the internet still pressured Visa to drop Pornhub. And so, uh, you know, I believe it was last week or week before, you know, Visa said, we're not, we're not going to serve Pornhub anymore. Again, what does this do? Does it get porn off the internet? Not by any stretch of the imagination. What it does is it makes life more difficult for uh, performers who are trying to get paid uh, to make a living. And the thing about it is, so these these evangelical groups want to ban porn. Mm-hmm. And in 16 states have declared porn a public health emergency. What? So they're not entirely, yeah. Um, and Utah has passed a law that says that any device, electronic device uh, that connects to the internet in the state has to have a porn filter that's set to on. Now, this is a law that I believe goes into effect if like other states implement a similar law. So it's, right. it's not being enforced yet. But yeah, it's on, it's on the books. Like Gosh. states are trying to ban porn, or at least limit it. That's crazy. But what, what we know about black markets is that when you make something illegal, it just gets more dangerous yeah. and bad. And if we can't know that, for instance, if we're watching American porn, white market porn, we can be very confident it's everyone in it is 18 and over because that's legally required when you're watching black market porn like there's no you can't tell you know there's no right exactly and so what they're doing is extremely dangerous because it's not going to work as far as getting sex off the internet and it's going to make uh, the conditions under which sex workers work much more dangerous right I, i didn't even hear about that that's wild I can't believe they could even try to enforce that. I mean, we'll see, but it's just, it's, it's weird because it's like um, in 2020 for the first time ever, a majority of voters said that they approve of decriminalizing sex work and you've got OnlyFans, right? Which is like, so we're seeing like progress in the decriminalization and destigmatization of sex work. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're enduring a severe reactionary backlash against pornography yeah. Um, and so it's, 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 uh, it's definitely part of the reason I started writing about, uh, sex work and porn more seriously 
uh, in 2020 is that I've just come to believe that as the war on drugs ramps down, authoritarians are shifting their focus to the war on sex. Totally. That there is a small component of Americans who are deeply, deeply misled about sex work and porn and are going to support or at least not be concerned with um, efforts to criminalize it and stigmatize it. Um, And, you know, this is this is this is kind of an easy win for authoritarian evangelicals. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. Um, gosh, you are so deeply knowledgeable on like everything that I ask you, like amazing. <laughs> First of all, um, <laughs> do you have any comment on uh, the earn it act? I think that they, I think it's not, propo- it's proposed in 2020 and something about like, um, I think it's an amendment to Section 230, which is part of the Communications Act. Do you want to speak about that? And also, there is an entire episode on Section 230 um, that I've done before on Season 3, I want to say, (laughs) if you're interested. That's awesome. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. The Communications Decency Act, Section 230, is like super important. And so I'm super glad that you have been covering that. And I won't... um, bore everyone with with another go over of of what that is. But um, yeah, the Earn It Act is hot garbage. Um, It is the second, it would be the second major encroachment on Section 230 after SESTA-FOSTA. It's going specifically after supposedly um, CSAM. Um, But what it actually would do is, again, incentivize platforms to censor wide ranges of content that's not that aren't actually objectionable to shield them from potential criminal liability um it would make it extremely expensive essentially for any platform to allow any kind of um user uploaded content because the platform would then be criminally liable for um if anyone uploaded anything that could be construed as legally objectionable. And (laughs) what this means is essentially the only people who would be kind of allowed to do business on the internet would be large, powerful corporations because, because the cost of doing business would then be extremely high the co- it makes the cost of doing business very high, mm-hmm. which very profitable large companies can afford, and yeah. smaller ones just can't. It can't, yeah. Um, and so this is, yeah. So it's basically um, a giveaway. To, it's it's a it's a give it's a it's a perfect example of corporatism where it's giving incumbents, large incumbents, large well connected incumbents, an advantage over smaller competitors. And again, it, it's not going to do what it's supposed to do. Right now, companies are sending you know, tens of thousands of instances of CSAM to the Justice Department every year. They're saying, we think this is CSAM, please investigate. The Justice Department is doing jack shit to investigate those instances. Um, and so if... And this is what Ron Wyden, the you know the author of um, Section Two Thirty, mm-hmm. is saying. He said, "If you really want to deal with CSAM, 
you know, empower and, and require the Justice Department to do its job. Mm-hmm. There's no need to muzzle uh, platforms and to, you know, put, make them liable beyond what they're required to be liable for. Right. Um, first of all, they're already liable. Mm-hmm. Uh, by law, platforms who find instances of CSAM are already legally required to report those to the Justice Department, which they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so it's it it's a it's a law that's going to enrich already rich corporations. Um, it's going to limit free speech by making it very expensive for smaller outlets to operate. Um, it's going to not do anything to solve the problem it's supposed to solve. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. Hot garbage, as you quote unquote <laughs> said, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> very bad. It's very bad. Yeah. No, that's really, really interesting too. Um, thanks for your comment on that, by the way. Um, I also, I know we're kind a little bit tight on time now, but there is something I want to speak to you about too. And and um, because you have such a firm understanding, because you are in the work, you have lived experience um, within our industry, I want to talk to you about um, the role that the media plays in terms of like um, responsible versus irresponsible journalism and the the reporting that's going out there uh, nowadays. So um, I was really curious to hear about um, because sex work is always such a hot topic, it, it often gets sensationalized a lot. Um, I really want to hear your kind of positioning in terms of like how can we report better on sex worker is that on sex work is that through employing more sex workers uh, to write about this does that include trying to interview uh, more purposefully sex workers and people that have this experience or like what what are your thoughts on that yeah I mean it's a huge problem and you know I don't think it's at all unique to sex work. I think there are certain incentives within our media ecosystem that uh, unfortunately distort uh, truth telling. And I think that two of them are uh, the drive to be sensational and the uh, expense of fact checking. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the big problems with uh, sex work reporting, as you mentioned, is that it's often sensationalized. And so what you see with that is there are a decent amount of stories on like very high income sex workers. And there is a decent amount of coverage on very low income sex workers. There's almost no coverage of the vast majority of sex workers who are middle income, living their lives, dropping their kids off at daycare, like just doing their thing. And so people as a result have a view of sex work that's extremely distorted where they think that, the vast majority of sex workers fall into one of two categories, and it's just not true. Um, then the second thing is the fact checking. So we see this with, you know, Christoph's article is a perfect example of, you know, Kristoff uh, throughout his career has just made uh, claims that are demonstrably false. And, you know, advocates have gone through and checked his facts and posted about his lies on our, our little blogs. But, you know, the New York Times has, I believe, an ethical duty to um, not publish things that haven't been uh, confirmed as factual. Totally. Um, 
And, you know, unfortunately, reporting and fact-checking are expensive and sensationalist, uh, untrue claims are profitable because they get clicks and they get attention and they get conversation. Right. And so it's just kind of a, a problem of misaligned incentives. Um, and then the third problem is <laughs> we have an ecosystem of evangelical organizations who have gone to great lengths to brand themselves as impartial uh um, organizations, you know, just concerned with working conditions for sex workers or just concerned with uh, stopping sex trafficking. Um, stuff. Yeah. So, for example, Morality and Media um, rebranded themselves um, to take the morality out of their name. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got, you know, Exodus Cry going to great lengths to hide their. Um, ties to a very (laughs) fringe uh, element of evangelical Christianity. So when you watch an Exodus Cry video, for example, you know, you're not going to see church iconography. You're not going to see appeals to religion. Um, It's going to seem like it's just concerned with, uh, you know, whatever the topic is that they're, they're dealing with, but the, the ties are uh, unavoidable. Like they exist and you can't get rid of them, but journalists are, doing their jobs quickly. And so when they're looking for someone to comment on the adult industry, you know, they're going to look to these organizations and they're going to quote these organizations as if they are who they purport to be, as opposed to what they actually are, which are extremely biased um, zealots who are looking to purge the internet of any and all sexual content. And so they're not then looking for, you know, the quote unquote other side, which is like, hey, why don't we interview someone who's actually performing or and I think in recent years, I would say the last five years has gotten a lot better. I think you're much more likely to see journalists talking to sex workers about sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're still seeing articles where like only someone from Exodus Cry or only someone from um, these other organizations that are anti-porn are being quoted. And that just really, again, distorts the conversation. Like if we were talking about, you know, uh, any other issue, you know, we would see it uh, clearly as like a, a biased journalism practice to uh, cite people as experts who uh, clearly have an agenda. But I think on sex work, um, it's just not quite as uh, clearly understood. It's not. It really isn't. I feel like a lot of people don't have a firm understanding of our industry and how how we work and operate. And oftentimes they'll just get misconstrued um, or you'll never hear from like the vast majority of people that are in sex work. It's just like those are on the outliers, those who are being exploited or those who are just like living the life, quote unquote. Right. And that's the only perspectives you ever get to hear from, which is why I want to do this show, because like it just gives everyone a voice, (laughs) you know. So and I love it and I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, with that being said, like, how can media companies and big journalism, like, how can they do better? How can they be more inclusive? Like, do you think that they're progressing in any way? Or what are your thoughts? Sorry, I do. I think that they're, again, like, much more likely these days to talk to actual sex workers um, about sex work. I think what I would really like to see them do is to 
properly identify the people they're talking to. So I think Melissa Jira Grant is doing like the most when it comes to this, right? She's digging into who are these people? What are their, um, where does their money come from? Uh, what churches are they associated with? Um, what is their agenda? Mm-hmm. Or she's a sex worker or a former sex worker, um, <laughs> but she's also a journalist. So she's doing a great job there. But I think, you know, every, uh, journalist who quotes somebody like Benjamin Nolot from Exodus Cry should identify him as someone who's leading an organization that wants to ban all sexual content from the internet um, and has deep evangelical ties. Mm -hmm. Like that's just an accurate representation of reality. Um, And so everything that this person says needs to be understood through that lens of his agenda and his work. Um, And I think as well, like uh, when we're talking about the fact that Visa has, uh, you know, dropped Pornhub, interview sex workers, interview porn performers, like interview people, interview people who are making a good living on Pornhub who aren't going to be able to anymore. Yeah. Right. And then fact check. So we have journalists claiming directly from Exodus Cry and other organizations, Trafficking Hub, yada, yada that, uh, you know, online pornography is associated with sex trafficking. Mm. There's no evidence, absolutely uh. no, no evidence to indicate that that is true in any meaningful way. Um, don't repeat <laughs> PR groups lives uncritically. Like it's, and it's the same with cops, you know, journalists are just repeating cops lies uncritically because they want to maintain relationships and because it's easier and faster. But like, Part of your job is to tell the truth. And the truth is that this is a claim made without any evidence whatsoever. Yeah. Or without any any context at all. And then people just like take that as fact so quickly. Right. And right. And so the, the context is, uh, you know, yeah, problematic stuff pops up on Pornhub, but way more pops up on Facebook. Right. That's the kind of context that people need to understand. Um, that's just not anywhere near as commonly cited as, as I think it should be. Right. Totally. Uh, I know we're wrapping up here on time, but um, maybe you can move on to some Q&A. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for like another like hour on all this. It's so fascinating and you're so well-spoken. So, so thank you for all this. And I'm hoping that listeners are really um, getting some like takeaways from this episode so far because I've already had so much, like lots of revealing information here too. Um, but yes, there are a few questions that came in from the audience. So Twitter and Instagram, just pulling that up now. So first question is, I am a sex worker wanting to get into writing. What's the best way for me to do this? And what is the best way to get paid for this work? Hmm. Well, I'm no expert on getting paid, but, um, I would say like, right? <laughs> you know, just, just right. And the thing about it is, um, publish. And the thing that publishing does is it gives you insight into what people care about, what people respond to. And what I've found is that people are often really nervous to publish because, you know, they're going to be like, oh, this is a stinker and I'm going to be embarrassed. The thing about it is, Unless you're, unless it's bad in a really like compelling, like dunkable way, 
people are just going to ignore your, your, your worst writing. People are just not going to read it or they're not going to respond to it. Um, but they're going to engage with your best writing uh, and your most interesting writing. And so this teaches you like what, what resonates with people, which is really important. Um, and to just make a habit of it, you know, to set yourself a goal. I'm going to publish every week. I'm going to publish uh, every two weeks, whatever it is, like make a commitment and stick to it. And then what I did to get paid, um, which, you know, freelance writing is, if you, if you really want to get paid writing, um, write about something where demand vastly exceeds supply. Like that's, that's what you do. Um, the demand for, you know, uh, political commentary is not that there's much more supply than demand. So that's going to be a tough place to get paid. Um, but if you're writing like financial advice, um, you know, that's different. So, you know, if you want to maximize for income, uh, find a niche that demand vastly exceeds supply. Um, and if you want to get, you know, I'm still working on how do I get paid well for the shit that I really want to write about and care about, you know, that's a hard needle to thread and, yeah. and I haven't figured it out either. <laughs> yeah. It's tricky. Cause it's a lot of a, it's a lot of labor on our front too, especially when we have um, non uh, like folks that are wanting to interview us or folks that want us to write for them that aren't part of this industry. And like that whole moral um, part in our brains to be like, well, we should be getting compensated for our time. And I mean, we should be, we should be like, I never, I usually will try to like, if like I, if I can share as well, cause I do a bit of writing as well. Um, I also just want to ask like, well, do you have a budget for, um, compensating sex workers because I am reporting on this for you. And this is like time, emotion and labor, um, that I really st feel strongly that we should be compensated for. So I usually try to communicate that kind of upfront and to see if that is a possibility. Same with interviews and stuff too. So I love that. I think that's great advice. The other thing I would say is that's honestly what I was doing with OnlyFans was it was kind of, I mean, it was very much how I monetized my writing. So when I would write and tweet, you know, that would get me attention that I would then say, Hey, do you want to see me naked? Like, and the vast, vast majority of my fans and OnlyFans came from my writing and tweeting. And so if you're already doing sex work, um, you know, writing about things you care about can be a great funnel toward uh, toward your sex work, which is much higher paid than commentary. Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's going into the next question anyways. It's kind of related. So um, this person's asking – you are face out and name out with your work, with writing, but also with your OnlyFans. Is that a purposeful decision or is that something you thought about? Have you thought of an alias before? So, yeah. And how safe is it? Yeah, it's something I've thought about a lot and um, ultimately decided to do for a few reasons. First of all, uh, my first job was doing search engine optimization. And so I'm always a big fan of like being findable. Yes. <laughs> um, but in addition, you know, I came out about having done sugar babying before, I, long before I started my OnlyFans. And part of the reason was because, you know, part of my mission in life is to destigmatize the consensual sex. And, you know, when you look at the gay rights movement, the things really started snowballing when people started coming out. And it's really difficult to have these incorrect preconceived notions about gay people when you know someone who directly contradicts those notions, right? And 
um, I think the same is true of sex workers that way more people know a sex worker than know they know a sex worker. And I do think it's incumbent on anyone who has the privilege to be able to do so safely to come out, whether it's about being trans or being a sex worker or being gay or being an atheist or whatever it is, like that's how we destigmatize it is that we put a face and a name to it. Um, and we, we don't entrench the stigma by keeping it a secret. And I do not think that people who are going to lose custody, uh, shelter, um, income, you know, those people have no obligation whatsoever to come out. But for me, um, I was like, you know what, I'm, I think I'm in a position where I can afford to do this. I can afford to take the risk, take the hit of being face out and name out. Um, and, uh, it's worked out beautifully for me. You know, I don't have any kids. Um, I'm not married. Um, my family, uh, has decided they're going to love me no matter what, which I'm extremely grateful for. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm, and I'm fairly talented. And so, you know, it's not been terribly difficult for me to, to find employment, um, post coming out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I also decided pretty young that the problem isn't that there aren't enough doors open to you. Most of the time, the problem is knowing which doors to walk through. And I decided if there's a door that's going to be closed to me because I'm honest about who I am, that's not a room I want to be in. Totally. And so anyone who's not going to hire me because I have done sex work, fuck them. Like, I don't want to work for them. Um, you know, and if I were hungry, I would have a different attitude. But yeah. I've been blessed enough to have not have that be my situation most of my life and so um, in adulthood. And so, uh, yeah, it was it was intentional. It was for the purpose of destigmatizing sex work um, and because it was profitable for me. And, uh, and it's worked out well. Um, and you know, because I've, I've been privileged enough to be in a situation where I was able to do so safely. Love that. I love that. I just don't hear many people like, like you and like myself too, cause I use my, this is my real legal name as well. And I haven't distinguished between them. I know a lot of, and of course I've had a lot of guests and I also advocate for anyone having an alias and stuff like that too. Um, but here I am just being completely out. <laughs> as well. So it's really, really cool to kind of hear that from your perspective as well. Um, we have a couple minutes left here. I know that you released a new ebook um, this past May as well. If you want to quickly go into that before we start promoing everything else, <laughs> feel free to go into that. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's a guide. It's 15 pages. It's called three steps to better boinking. And it's just kind of what I've learned um, through experience and uh, through reading about how to have better sex. Obviously you can write tomes and tomes about how to have great sex, but I really wanted to distill it um, into the most time efficient, entertaining way possible. And so it's gotten great reviews and it's a uh, $10 on Gumroad. Awesome. I mean, we'll post those links in addition to all the other links that we're about to promote, but where Kathy can everyone else find you? Awesome. Thank you so much. So my sex in the state, you can either Google sex in the state or Kathy Reisenwitz.substack.com. That's C-A-T-H-Y-R-E-I-S-E-N-W-I-T-Z. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, at Kathy Reisenwitz. Um, and those are the main places to find my stuff. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, it was such a delightful conversation that we've had and we've shared today. Thank you so much for your expertise and knowledge. Like this has been such a great episode to kind of kick off season five. And I hope everyone will continue to follow Kathy and just follow everything that she does because she's amazing. And uh, for everyone else listening at home, it is new episodes every single Sunday on every podcast platform that's pretty much out there. Um, If you do happen to be listening on Apple, feel free to write a review or rate five stars. Um, Any kind of feedback is greatly appreciated. I super, super um, appreciate that. And also if you're listening on Spotify, if you want to rate and follow on there, that'd be awesome. Um, It is Stripped by Sia on Patreon. So patreon.com slash Stripped by Sia as well as Twitter. uh, Instagram is all Stripped by Sia. And one day, hopefully I will be plugging my soon to be launching website. So please stay tuned on that. It's been a long time coming. I mean, five seasons later, but you know what? Here we are. (laughs) But uh, thank you so much, Kathy, for joining me today on the show. And uh, we'll see everyone uh, for another episode next week. Thank you. You're listening to Stripped by Sia, hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia, music by Ted D., Graphic design by Maria Bellandorama and photography by Ian Davern.